Hi there, welcome to the meeting. I'm your host, Luba, and in this season, I'm talking to professionals across industries and functions on the impact of coronavirus on their day-to-day lives. In this episode, I'm joined by Hasib Karashi, managing partner at Dragonfly Capital Partners, a cryptocurrency investment firm. Previously, Hasib was a software engineer and a professional poker player. In this conversation, we vastly explore the topic of cryptocurrencies, the history, the adoption mechanisms, why cryptocurrencies exist, and who would most benefit from them. We also discussed whether coronavirus would be a trigger to cryptocurrency adoption and what are the most valuable tokens right now. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was fascinating and we tapped onto a lot of philosophical concepts such as decentralization and government regulation. Enjoy. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hey, how's it going, Luba? Good, good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good to see you too. I am hearing that COVID-19 could be that breakthrough in adoption of digital currency, of cryptocurrency. And I wanted to actually start with the basics. Could you please explain me what are some fundamentals of blockchain? Some Some fundamentals of blockchain. Yeah, like what is foundationally blockchain? Just like if you were to describe it to a five-year-old, what is cryptocurrency? What is blockchain? Yeah. Um, so I do, I do talk a lot with five-year-olds about blockchain. So this is perfect. For me. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so a blockchain, basically you can think about as being a, a shared ledger between a bunch of people who are using this ledger to keep a record of something. Uh, but this ledger cannot be manipulated. And there are different ways of making sure that the ledger can't be manipulated. Um, but if you think about, okay, why, who cares? Why do we care about having a shared ledger that we can't manipulate? Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of what we think about as being money. Money is just a way of keeping track of who owns what in a way that no in particular person controls, right? So mm-hmm. if, if you owe me $5, the idea that I can go back and like rewrite that history and change it so that, I, no, I don't owe you $5 or you don't owe me $5 or mm-hmm. our bank accounts have different numbers written on them. As long as you can get this property of having mm-hmm. a system that always records everything that happens and never reverts any history, uh, then you can create money on the internet. You can create completely mm-hmm. native money on the internet that isn't tied to banks or bank accounts or any particular government. It can be a, a type of money mm-hmm. that is completely untethered from countries or nation states or companies. And that is fundamentally new. That's the, the I think, the, the real exciting innovation behind cryptocurrencies is that they're, they're sort of this new kind of money that the world has never seen before. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you've been, if you've been sort of following along in markets, uh, since the advent of, well, basically since the since the panic of coronavirus, uh, cryptocurrencies have done really well, which mm-hmm. is to some degree unsurprising when the rest of the economy is kind of in disarray and it's unclear what the relationships between countries are going to be post-COVID. Uh, cryptocurrencies are a, a form of money, they're sort of an economy that is diversified away from any particular country, any particular company in the same way that the internet is. And that is very exciting. You mentioned that cryptocurrencies have done really well since COVID-19. Um, why, why is that the case? Like, How does anyone even get exposed to cryptocurrencies and what doing well in this market actually means? Does it mean that people are adopting it a lot more? Are there any specific industries that it's being adopted in more? Or is it more just like country-centric, like, oh, I don't know, Cuba, uh, whenever they're making any transactions, they're using cryptocurrency. Like, how does anyone even get exposed to starting to adopt the currency? Great question. It's a a complicated story. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, what actually happened was right after COVID, cryptocurrency markets dropped really dramatically in a single day, the same day that when, you know, uh, uh, oil totally crashed and a lot of the stock mm-hmm. market just took a nosedive. On that same day in cryptocurrency land, we call that Black Thursday. And mm-hmm. uh, crypto markets dropped like 40% in a single day. Interesting. And since then, they have recovered pretty much all of the gains. So uh, since the advent of COVID, uh, cryptocurrencies have actually outperformed all other uh, uh, equities uh, all around the mm-hmm. world. So outperformed the S and P, outperformed uh, you know even stocks in Asia. Wow! And <clears throat> should have invested in cryptocurrency when the drop happened. <laughs> well, I mean, you, it would have been you would have been better insulated from the from the losses than if you were in uh, in in um, That's true. Uh, equities. But you know, b- basically, 
Cryptocurrencies today are used for a, a wide variety of, of, of purposes, okay? Mm -hmm. So very early on, there was this idea that people are going to use cryptocurrencies to buy coffee at Starbucks. And it's become increasingly clear that this is kind of a, kind of a pipe dream. This is probably not the way that cryptocurrencies are going to be used. And the reason why that's not an attractive use case for cryptocurrencies is that, you know, in most places around the world, it's actually really easy to buy a Starbucks. Like your experience is already great right. buying a Starbucks, right? Like you have your Starbucks card or you have Starbucks points or use your credit card. Or, you, or if you're you know, in Asia, you might use Alipay or WeChat Pay. Uh, pretty much most of the places where Starbucks is, first world citizens have great ways of doing small time right. consumer payments, right? So uh, cryptocurrencies, it's pretty hard to compete with that. But the places where cryptocurrencies are most attractive are places where the traditional financial system has not served people well. So mm -hmm. what are some examples of that? So one would be you know, having a kind of uh, store of value that's uncorrelated with a particular economy or a particular country, right? So having this sort of gold-like store of value, that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why Bitcoin has been so attractive over the last you know, several months. Uh, another thing that it's very big on is international remittances. So we're mm -hmm. seeing uh, increasing number of remittances going through cryptocurrencies around the world. So especially in Latin America, in different parts of Asia, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of actually cross-country transactions happening in cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. where, you know, there, there's this uh, big Russia-China flow that takes place in cryptocurrencies because, you know, between the rubles and between the RMB, it's, it's very difficult to... To, to, you know, for, for both parties that are engaging in that cross-country trade mm -hmm. uh, to want to denominate their transactions in a single one of those currencies. And of course, they're highly regulated. It's very difficult for them to do that. Right. Um, you're also seeing, of course, a lot of gray market adoption. So right. you're seeing things like, you know, casinos. You're seeing things like, you know, uh, uh, other, other types of, you know, sort of, uh, obviously, the very original Mm -hmm. uh, adoption was in uh, darknet markets where people buy drugs online. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, you know, that, of course, the reality is like a lot of the world's economy is in the sort of quote unquote gray market, uh, mm -hmm. which is, you know, not officially regulated, not officially sanctioned uh, 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 economic activity that happens around the world. And so we see cryptocurrencies as kind of filling in a lot of the gaps in the world where either one uh, overregulation or monopolies or too many middlemen mm -hmm. have made things way too expensive, such as, for example, in remittances, where mm -hmm. you, know, you want to send remittances back home. Maybe you have some family in Belarus and you want to send them some money. Well, right. very often it's like 7% of all the money you send gets captured by this middleman, right? And if you send that money through cryptocurrencies, then maybe it's less than 1%, which is huge, huge difference in margin. Um, so that's, so, so there's like sort of the regulatory capture or the inefficient markets on one side. Mm -hmm. And then there's the places where people just don't have access to good financial services. And that is, a, is a, another very big part of the world where we see crypto growing. So speaking of regulation and centralization, crypto ultimately, the idea of cryptocurrency, in my understanding, is decentralization and anonymity. Like you can send money to whoever and like it's not going to be tracked and you can do it across boundaries and across countries. Why would governments want crypto on their lands, considering government wants to centralize everything, to regulate everything and ultimately has con have control? How do does this decentralization go hand in hand with um, government regulation? So that's a that's a very deep question. And it depends very much on the particular country you're talking about and the particular time you're talking about, mm -hmm. because many countries have changed their perspectives on cryptocurrencies through time. So there, there is a common misnomer about cryptocurrencies that cryptocurrencies are a common misunderstanding that cryptocurrencies are private by nature. And mm -hmm. that's not exactly true, right? So take Bitcoin, for example, right? Bitcoin is what we call pseudonymous. It's not anonymous. So an anonymous cryptocurrency would be one where nobody knows who you are and anything that you do, it could be anybody. Mm -hmm. And I think a better analogy for Bitcoin is that uh, I, I believe uh, Ian Myers puts it that Bitcoin is Twitter for your bank account. Mm -hmm. The idea is that, you know, when I, when I create a Bitcoin account and I start sending money, everybody in the world can actually see my Bitcoin address and they can see the Bitcoin address moving money. Uh -huh. Now, they don't necessarily know which one is mine. All they see is that there's some address that has some name and it's sending money somewhere and they may not be able to label, okay, this one belongs to Luba and this one is her, you know, shoe store and this one is Amazon's address and this one is mm -hmm. sending to Coinbase. Um, they may not know that, but it's possible in principle for somebody to go do all the labeling to track. Mm -hmm. and figure mm -hmm. out what's going on. And so the yeah. reality is that, uh, so first of all, for, for many cryptocurrencies, 
uh, governments actually actually pay for analysts who do this kind of service. So there are there are firms out there that basically will label different parts of the blockchain to figure out, okay, well, just by seeing enough transactions, you can figure out, okay, this person, this address belongs to this online store. This address belongs to Coinbase. This address belongs to this thing. And they can, and they can potentially track the flow of funds that way. Uh, but the reality is like, look, if you're not a target, then probably nobody's gonna ever check what you're doing. Nobody, nobody really cares. So you sort of get lost in the crowd. Right. In the same way I that see. if you create an anonymous account on Twitter, you're kind of anonymous, but obviously Twitter can figure out who you are. And if, you know, the FBI is, is sufficiently motivated, they can subpoena Twitter, they can figure out what your IP was. Right. And yeah. so there's a sense of that you sort of have effective anonymity. But if somebody really goes knocking, there's a good chance that they can figure out, you know, the, the paper trail of like, you know, following the, 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 the forensics of the blockchain to yeah. get back to where you are. Now, there are some cryptocurrencies that aren't like that, but... Uh, those cryptocurrencies are even more complicated. So the question of why do governments allow this? Right? Yeah. What's in it for them to yeah, allow in, private citizens to, to mm-hmm. take money out of the system? And the answer is somewhat complicated, uh, but I think it mostly boils down to governments are afraid of turning off innovation. Mm-hmm. And they know that what's happening in cryptocurrencies is a, is a hotbed of innovation. And even though it's kind of scary, even though it's kind of risque, and there are parts of it that they don't like. Overall, they are more afraid of, of you know, sort of cutting off innovation and letting other countries capture the fruits of that innovation mm-hmm. than they are of, of, of the, the risk of that is, is too great for them to be willing to do that right now. And that calculus might change some, at some point. They might say mm-hmm. eventually, and you know, countries have done this. There was a point at which India banned cryptocurrency trading. Uh, there was a point at which China tried to ban cryptocurrency trading. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, countries that have very strong capital controls very often, uh, so capital controls mean they they disallow people from, for example, buying foreign currencies. So mm-hmm. in China or in India, there are very strict limits for yeah. on how much U.S. dollars you're allowed to buy. Which you know, of course, many people in the world want U.S. dollars because they're so stable. But you know, I, I imagine you know uh, many Eastern Bloc countries had the same laws in place preventing people from buying Western currencies, right? Yeah, I actually had a had a question about Eastern Bloc specifically because I know, and in conversations with you, it sounded like um, Russia is a really big cryptocurrency feel, space, and there is a lot of people from Russia that are trading cr- cryptocurrencies, that are creating ICOs. There is a few big companies, and I'm just curious, like maybe. It, maybe it has to do with something cultural or some innovation that's <laughs> happening specifically in Russia, but like, how is it that Eastern Bloc is so, so active in uh, innovating in cryptocurrency, considering that the government is actually so centralized and so uh, like wants to be more and more controlling? So uh, I think Russia has, has, has thrown its weight around within crypto. I don't think most of the other countries in Eastern Europe or in, uh, in, in that region have been that active. As for why Russia has been so active in crypto, I think a large part of it is that, so one, Russia just has a, they have a lot of great programmers. And yeah. that I think is, has a large part to There's do with bit. why they've mm-hmm. been so active in, in the crypto space. And uh, I mean, even like Vitalik system. Buterin, right? He, that's right. That's he's right. Russian, he was born right? in Russia. He's he was born in Russia. Yeah, he grew up in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he went to Waterloo, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was born in Russia. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you know they have uh, a number of other projects that that have been Russian-born that have that have gone to do interesting things, and uh, we've actually backed some companies that have uh, you know Russian uh, co-founders. Mm. And my my sense is that you know much of it also is that Russia is a country where you know there's a lot of interest in cryptocurrencies because they're a way to get rich quick. And mm. they, they, you know, since the days of the ICO bubble, so you know, ICOs right. aren't really a thing anymore. They kind of died away in 2018. But yeah, I noticed that there is a lot less buzz about oh, this company wants to create ICO. Remember a couple of years ago, oh, yeah. Twitter came out with working on an ICO and a bunch of other big like big tech companies because it was such a hot topic and so many right. you know people made a lot of money on ICOs. Why did why did that die down? Uh, why did the ICO bubble die down? So I think the and, answer and is I guess fairly actually, obvious. I'm yeah? sorry to interrupt you, but a question even before that, what is an ICO? So for, for, those, yes. uh, for the audience who doesn't necessarily know what an ICO is. Totally. So an ICO, it stands for initial coin offering. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like an IPO. The idea is that, you know, let's say that I have some new crypto project mm-hmm. that I think is great, but I don't have any money. So what I'll do is 
before I have the project launch, or maybe right before I'm going to launch the project, um, I will go ahead and sell the tokens for this network that I'm going to launch to the public. Mm. And because, Mm -hmm. you know, crypto is permissionless and anybody can do that anywhere in the world, I can say, great, if you send me, you know, five Ethereum, I'll give you, you know, 10 of my tokens. And if you're going to basically speculate that my tokens are going to be really valuable in the future. Yeah. So that happened just en masse in 2017. And Mm -hmm. we now call that the ICO bubble because, you know, there was this huge ICO frenzy. Everybody in the world was, I remember (laughs) remember, um, getting an Uber rides and my Uber driver telling me to invest in these ICOs. (laughs) I was like, this is going to, this is going to collapse. And it did in 2018, Mm -hmm. the entire Mm -hmm. bubble totally deflated. Uh, Most of the ICOs lost 95 plus percent of their value. And there are still some tokens that are still valuable that did ICOs, mm-hmm. but most of them completely died because of Got course it. they were they were mostly nonsense. A lot of them were very shady. They were just random people trying to get rich quick. And mm-hmm. you know, I think and, and were, a lot of them did. I mean, I still hear yeah. stories about uh, people hiding on an island somewhere to avoid taxes. Because... Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Well, but most of the people lost the money back because you know mm-hmm. when, when the whole crypto space collapsed. A lot of people didn't sell at the top. You know, most people most people wrote it down and right. lost a lot of their money back. So mm-hmm. if that's any, uh, if it makes you feel any better, you know that not that many people made away with all with all made, that money yeah. during the bubble. So yeah. justice was somewhat served in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but so ICOs ICOs are not so much of a thing anymore, uh, and the reason why is pretty easy to foresee, which is that none of these things were actually valuable. So. If you're not really creating value, if the thing that you're making yeah. uh, isn't isn't truly needed by the world, then eventually you're going to run out of a greater fool to buy this thing off of you, right? And that's yeah. kind of what was happening was that there was this there was this you know stampede of people from a larger and larger swath of the world. I remember there was one point in December 2017 that Coinbase was the number one app in the Google Play Store, and wow. that was just that's insane to me, to me. That was a sign that like okay, this this is going to this is this going is gonna to burst. Yeah. yeah. This is going to burst mm-hmm. at some point. And uh, when, when finally the, the music stopped, then immediately everything just started dumping and the whole mm-hmm. thing fell to pieces. And uh, I, I was one of the people who was kind of ringing that bell relatively early on, like, hey, this is not sustainable. Yeah. None of this makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, this value is not going to survive. Uh, and, that's, and that's what happened. Uh, but even in the aftermath of 2018, when all the ICOs drew down, um, the fundamental cryptocurrencies that really were innovative came back and they, they recovered in prices. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So we, we still haven't hit, you know, the, the peaks of market capitalization of crypto that we saw in mm-hmm. 2017, but that mm-hmm. was really just driven by this huge, huge bubbly interest. Uh, but Bitcoin is at about half the price that it was at the height of the bubble, which mm-hmm. is a pretty far cry from where it went down to. So Bitcoin, Bitcoin uh, fell all the way down at the, at the height of the bubble it was at $20,000. Mm-hmm. And when the I bubble burst, that. It, it fell all the way down in December 2018 to $3,000. And now it's pretty close to $10,000 again. So mm-hmm. which tells you, hey, you know, even in the absence of any get rich quick phenomenon, crypto is real. Crypto is here to stay. It was not a momentary phenomenon. It was not this, you know, flash in the pan that, you know, people can basically ignore. Uh, it's going to be a fundamental fixture of our new economic landscape. You know, it's we're we're in the 2020s now. Yeah, you know, we're living in the future, and yeah. crypto is is crypto is not going anywhere. So I want to bring you back then to coronavirus. Do you believe that coronavirus is a trigger for crypto adoption? So uh, I would say yes and no. Um, so in, in the yes case, what I would say is that COVID nineteen is clearly going to accelerate the demand for Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And we, we've for seen Bitcoin this already. specifically or for Bitcoin specifically for Bitcoin okay. specifically. And why for Bitcoin is, specifically? So Bitcoin sort of has this narrative as being the digital gold. Mm-hmm. And right now is a time when in particular digital gold is particularly attractive. Right. So why do I say that? Well, you know, actually, there's this uh, famous macro investor named Paul Tudor Jones who put mm-hmm. out a memo uh, a couple of weeks ago describing why he was so bullish on Bitcoin. And that was sort of the first big moment when like a sort of, you know, a financial uh, celebrity, one of the stalwarts mm-hmm. of the industry came out and saying, yes, Bitcoin is Bitcoin is the thing to invest in. And the reason why he said that was that Bitcoin sort of serves as, you know, right now, all the countries in the world with, with major central banks are printing money like crazy to try to buoy mm-hmm. their economies. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a big real fear that 
in order for this to be sustainable, the levels of debt that you know every major economy is taking on in order to try to maintain their economic uh, uh, sustainability is going to result in inflation. Like mm-hmm. there, at some point, it has to happen, and it's likely going to happen in all of these other. You know, if you're if you're not the U.S. economy, maybe maybe the U.S. economy will be spared because we are the reserve currency of the world, and everybody right. has everybody has demand for our currency and our debt, but most of the countries in the world do not have that, that, you know, sort of unlimited wellspring of demand and obviously not literally unlimited, um, but they don't have that big pool of demand to, to sell into. And those countries are likely to see inflation. And some of them are going to have really nasty inflation. And that inflation is going to drive demand for, you know, getting access to currencies that get you out of that inflationary uh, 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 spiral. And for a lot of them, the easiest way to do that is to buy Bitcoin. Is to try to get your money out of your economy into this this digital gold. Please, I'm just curious on that point. Why is crypto digital gold that people want to buy into if inflation happens? Considering how volatile Bitcoin itself is. So that's that's a that's a very good question because Bitcoin is quite volatile. Yeah. So I think the, the reason why Bitcoin is particularly attractive is not necessarily because it's not volatile. Bitcoin's volatility is going to stick around for a while until right. it sort of becomes this kind of staid, old, boring currency that everybody kind of knows about and nobody ever thinks twice about, right? Uh, that, that's probably going to take, you know, maybe another decade before we get mm-hmm. there. Uh, the, the, the point about Bitcoin that makes it so attractive is that Bitcoin is fundamentally scarce. And what do I mean by that? So Bitcoin is the only currency in the world that we know exactly how much Bitcoin will ever exist and no mm-hmm. more Bitcoin than that will ever get minted, no matter what. And that that guarantee is is programmed into Bitcoin itself. Bitcoin will only ever mint 21 million units ever in Bitcoin history. And that was part of the rules that Satoshi Nakamoto coded up into the fundamental protocol of Bitcoin. And that is not true of any other asset in the universe. There is no limit fundamentally on how much oil there will be. There is no limit on how much gold there will be. We don't know how much gold there is in the world. And even if we mine all the gold in the earth, eventually we'll be able to mine gold on asteroids. And that gold might be way more than we have on, on the planet Earth. And so every other commodity, and of course, currencies, you can just print as much of that currency as you want, right? There's no mm-hmm. guarantee that t- 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, that these countries, these central banks, won't mint more and more of their currency. More money. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so you know, if you look historically, every major currency, even currencies that were the world currency at the time, such as you know, the British pound, which at one point was the world currency, or you know, the Roman denarius, at, the, at mm-hmm. one point, that was the, the major currency. Every currency in history at some point has gotten massively inflated to mm-hmm. the point of being worth much less than where you started. So speaking of inflation, then, let's say one person just buys all the Bitcoin. How, yeah. do, you, how do you put this ownership of Bitcoin uh, hand in hand with its value because there is only so many units in the world. Like wh- what happens when someone, like a couple of people just own all of Bitcoin? Where do I go to access stability and access uh, like kind of fight inflation? Like would I go to a different cryptocurrency or? Well, so I think what would happen is that Bitcoin would go way up in price. So there will always be somebody willing to sell you okay, Bitcoin. Okay, fair enough. But it might enough. be at an extremely expensive price. Expensive right? price, yeah. So that just means the price of Bitcoin is going to go way up if somebody does that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now for you, it doesn't necessarily matter what the price of Bitcoin is, because that's telling you this is the price of one unit of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. What you care about is the scarcity of Bitcoin. So even if you can only own half a Bitcoin because Bitcoin is worth twice as much, right. it doesn't really matter as much to you, right? It's sort of like saying, hey, do you want half of your, you know, let's say oil has come down by, you know, half, you know, that's $20 a barrel or something, right? Um, do you want to put your net worth in oil now? It's like, well... The, the actual price of oil doesn't really matter. The, the, what I care about is like, what percentage of my net worth is in oil? Mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, oil is going to do its up and down, its random walk right. or whatever, right? That is going to determine your economic effect of having that proportion of your portfolio in oil. But the total number of barrels of oil you own, you don't really care because you don't, right. it's, not like you, it's not like you're going to put the oils of, uh, or the barrels of oil in your backyard. Same thing with Bitcoin. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you think is are going to be like top three valuable cryptocurrencies of the future? So Bitcoin is clearly <laughs> one because of scarcity, scarcity, but not every yeah. currency, as far as I understand, actually has the limits uh, right. coded in for how many 
there can be minted. Yeah. Um, if I had to guess, and with a caveat that this is not investment advice, this is just my yeah. opinion. <laughs> not investment advice. Uh, definitely not investment advice. Um, I'd say, I, I guess number one would be Bitcoin. Probably number two will be Ethereum. Ethereum. And if I had to put my money, I'd say number three would be Maker. Oh, interesting. You know, that actually makes me think that I still can't find my crypto keys and I put some money into Maker is, and Zero X. Right. <laughs> and I think that money is just probably long gone because, again, what? crypto, you have to be really careful with where you put your keys and where That's you send true. them and where you save them. I'm still on the lookout for them. And yeah, like back in 2018, when there was the crypto bubble, I picked uh -huh. two coins to to just be like, oh, I'm going to invest into crypto as well without knowing too much about it. I just wanted to kind of ride the wave of it being hot and cool. So I put mm -hmm. money into Maker and Xerox. Um, and it's good to hear that you think Maker is going to stick around because now it makes yeah. you more motivated to look for my keys. <laughs> Those are two good choices. You picked well. Uh, just, you know, w w did you save your keys like in a file or something? Honestly, I don't remember. I feel like I saved it on probably a work computer and then I switched computers because yeah, <laughs> okay. it, it was a mess. Good. I, I definitely I definitely should look around and you know, if I can't find them, I guess that's it, right? Like if you can't find your keys, you can't have access to your wallet, right? Correct. That's why you want to make sure that you're very careful in how you custody your, your crypto. Yeah, yeah. So coming back to coronavirus and again, acceleration, do you think you ask like, we in the US will be soon buying stuff with cryptocurrency? Or is it mostly related to governments that are, again, like more regulated, there is more control over how people use currency and what they buy with the governmental currency? I think it's more the latter. I think that in the US, we have one of the most robust financial systems in the world. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, you know, cryptocurrency is competing with traditional fintech companies, and they are doing great. You know, our, our payments are very, very digitized at this point. Even credit cards are not so bad to use now that we have these digital affordances of like Apple Pay or, you know, Google Pay or mm -hmm. whatever. And, you know, th this is less true in many parts of the world. And, you know, they're, they're not all types of commerce, I think, are going to get denominated in crypto. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very possible that we see some adoption of stable coins within uh, you know, the U.S. payment system. So it might be like B2B payments, for example, start using stable coins as opposed to using ACH or other forms of payment. But for consumers, I don't really see that happening. Uh, for consumers, yeah, I think payments, our, our payments experiences are pretty, are pretty amazing. And mm -hmm. it's, it's hard for crypto to really be much better than what we have. Do you think in some ways the notion of cryptocurrency and the further adoption, let's say 10 years from now, the definition of what a government is and how government operates will be uh, will be disturbed or changed? I don't think governments themselves will be fundamentally changed, but mm -hmm. I do think that the contract between governments and individuals is going to change and crypto will have a, a large role in that. So what, what I mean by that is, you know, there are some things that the government doesn't regulate people doing, not because it doesn't want to, but because it can't. Right. So th there are some things that it's sort of impractical for the government to say that you can't do this, we can't do that. Um, because they're just, they're just aspects of our private lives that, you know, it would, it would, one can't even imagine how the government could take control of that. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it, it's going to now be the case that money will be one of those things, which it didn't used to be. It used to be that, you know, basically in order for you to use money, you sort of had to take, you sort of had to ask permission from the government, right. right. You sort of had to go get a bank account and the government could stop you from getting a bank account. It used yeah. to be that, you know, if you wanted to, you know, you had banknotes, right? And if you wanted to turn your banknotes back into gold, that's what banknotes used to be. These would be claims on gold. Uh, if you wanted to turn your banknotes back into gold, the government could stop you, right? And so today, for example, the way that you use cash, like just dollar bills, right? Mm -hmm. The government sort of knows that it can't really stop people from using dollar bills for day-to-day -day transactions. Or for example, you know, if I pay my friend, right? And, you know, uh, uh, I just, I just want to, you know, give you some money just because I care about you, right? Uh, the government knows that I can't really stop people from doing that. I can't really tax people from doing that. I can't really like force them to keep a log of that because, you know, I just don't have, it's just, it's just sort of out of my purview. So if you do it through a bank account or you do it through your work or you do it through this thing, then I can track it. I can tax it. I can do this. I can do that. Um, but if you do it with cash, I kind of can't really control it, right? There will, that, that uh, uh, frontier will now get expanded. 
where now if you do something through cash or through crypto, then I can't really control it. I can't really tax it. I can't mm. really do this. And so what that means is that, you know, the, the ability for citizens to do what they want with cash gives them power that they wouldn't otherwise have. And in the same way, the ability of citizens to use cryptocurrencies also gives them power that they wouldn't otherwise have. So it weakens the role of governments in favor of giving that power back to citizens. And sometimes citizens abuse that power, but sometimes mm -hmm. governments abuse that power. And it sort of works both ways, right? There are authoritarian governments like in Venezuela, where you know, the, the government has such an iron fist of control over the, the, the flow of money in that economy that you know, it, it would be absolutely great for the people of Venezuela if they had free access to, to money without being impeded by their governments. And of course, there are also places where it works in the other way. Ultimately, I think in, in most Western countries, we have, we have taken the choice of giving people freedom mm -hmm. and taking that power away from governments and giving it to citizens. I think in the future, more and more countries around the world will be pushed in that direction because of the, 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 this technology becoming so powerful that governments can't stop it. I want to expand on the notion of trust. A lot of governments, I mean, the majority of governments get money from taxes that the citizens pay. They have no mm -hmm. control over seeing how money flows and how much money every citizen has because everyone adopts crypto. Would the trust uh, from citizens to governments strengthen because the governments will ultimately have to trust their citizens more that they will pay taxes to them? to, you know, handle, I don't know, healthcare, like infrastructure, um, urban communities, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I, I don't know that I, uh, it, it's hard to know what exactly will happen. I mean, it, so, so one thing that, that's quite plausible, so if you think about it today, right, uh, pretty much every country in the world levies an income tax, right? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, if more and more commerce is getting denominated in crypto, then it'll be harder and harder for you to levy an income tax. The US didn't always have an income tax that actually I believe oh, came about in the civil war that we started doing an income tax. Uh, before that, uh, there, were, there, were many, there were many different other forms of taxes that the US levied. Um, mm -hmm. And it was actually perceived not to be constitutional to levy an income tax. And of course that ended up changing just as you know, many, many ideas, what our ideas yeah. are about what's unconstitutional or not change over time. Um, but you know, historically there are many other forms of taxes besides income tax you can do to levy you know, whatever taxes that you want. So for example, property taxes, are very easy to assess relative That's to income true. tax, especially if more and more of your uh, commerce is denominated in cash, and it's hard to know exactly what is your income. How can I check what your income is? You know, before, uh, in, in especially in many places with informal economies, it's hard to know what is somebody's income. I, I don't actually know yeah. what your income is. I don't. I don't expect you to be able. I don't expect you to report that to me honestly, because mm -hmm. what's your incentive to report that honestly, right? And so there, it's, it's much easier to say, look, I'm going to tax you based on the value of your household, or I'm going to tax mm -hmm. you based on you know, your exports, I'm going to tax you based on this or that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it may be that more and more of our taxation moves towards things that are easier for the government to measure uh, and, and more, you know, things that are more difficult, uh, such that you know, things that end up getting denominated in crypto, where there isn't an easy ability for the government to monitor what people are doing, uh, those areas will just get taxed less. So that, that seems to be a very plausible way to do it. And of course, you know, income taxes, one of the reasons why people uh, kind of, you know, one of, the, one of the things about income taxes versus, for example, property taxes is that property taxes are non-regressive. So mm -hmm. the very richest people have the most property. And so if you tax them, then it's like, okay, great, you're taxing the rich. That's kind of the way you want a tax system to work. Uh, you don't want the poor to be getting taxed. And a lot of uh, tax systems around the world are very regressive, meaning that they tax the poor disproportionately more than they're taxing the rich. Mm -hmm. Right, that makes sense. I want to talk a bit more about how the world will change post, again, this big, big pandemic test and you know more and more things are becoming remote. One, um, how has your life changed? You're in a very relationship-driven <laughs> business. Yeah, not, yeah. Like, not necessarily, I mean, you can obviously talk about your personal life, like your day-to-day -day routine and stuff, but in terms of business and how business is being done, curious how you think um, talent will work later on? Like we're not tied mm -hmm. to locations right now. We can, um, you know, we can get access to, I can get access to people in New York, let's say as much as you can get access to people in San Francisco, if you're staying in San Francisco, do you think talent mm -hmm. will be more distributed? How are you seeing the effects of this remote situation 
uh, in a very relationship-driven world, world, which is venture capital? And how do you think venture and uh, people investing money into people and companies will also change afterwards? So that's, that's a very broad uh, set of questions. So I'll, I'll start with, you know, so for myself, um, so venture traditionally, venture capital, for those who don't know, venture capital is, is sort of, you know, people investing in early stage companies. Yeah. And, you know, this line of business historically is a very people driven business. So, you know, it's like you sit down face to face with an entrepreneur, you look them in the eye, they explain to you what they're doing, they demo your, their product. And then, you know, you ask them a bunch of questions and you decide, hey, do I want to back this person? Do I believe in their vision? It's, it's historically a business where if you couldn't meet somebody, it's very rare that you would invest it's done. in a company yeah. if, if you, you, you've never even met the founder. Mm-hmm. And obviously that now has to change because, you know, people are not going to be meeting each other potentially for, you know, the next year, maybe, you know, it really depends on how COVID ends up affecting our economy. Um, but certainly at least, you know, for this six months, it's not as though no companies are going to get funded for, for the, these six months. And what that's meant is that we've had to learn to adapt, right? Mm-hmm. I think everybody in the world has learned to accept that, hey, the nature of the way that we do interactions has to change, at least temporarily. The, the real question in my mind is how much of this is going to stick? Yeah, how much right. of this is going to fundamentally change things, right? And um, here's what I'd say is there, there are two ways of thinking about this. So one is that uh, it's clear that COVID is going to accelerate things that were already begun uh, accelerate things that, that could have already happened, but needed that activation energy mm-hmm. to kind of push for, for, past mm-hmm. this threshold. So there are certain kinds of uh, roles and functions that naturally lend themselves to remote work. So I think engineering is one example, right? Yeah. So I think more and more engineering talent is going to be remote. And this is actually great for companies because it means that you no longer have to hire in centers of excellence like San Francisco, where the- But potentially not so great for engineers, right? Well, it's, it's, it's actually, it's great for engineers too, because if you're a great engineer, right? Okay, you can get paid, you know, 100K plus living in San Francisco, but then you have to pay a lot of that back in rent and in yeah. California taxes. And then, you know, like, yes, you were getting a high salary, but you were paying a large portion of it back in your cost of living. Now, That's very true. Yeah, I, I guess my point was that, you know, democratizing talent means that there is less scarcity because there is so much talent around the world, which probably will mean that the income engineers are going to make is going to be lower. Despite I, I understand your point about San Francisco has a high cost of living. So you making like 200 K's, probably like 50 K somewhere really, really cheap in reality. <laughs> not, not quite that, but May, yeah, maybe not 50 K. Yeah. Okay, yeah. like 80 like K. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Maybe sure, like 100K exactly. in Thailand. <laughs> uh, well, Thailand would be a lot. Yeah, Thailand would be a lot. But even if you just go to like, you know, you go to, to you know, Tennessee or something, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It you, goes you, a long way. You go way. to Texas. Exactly. It goes a much longer way. And so what that's going to mean, I think, is that, um, so it's clear that engineering is still incredibly important and demand for engineers is not going to fundamentally go away. If anything, there's been an increased adoption of digital services, right? Like e-commerce right. jumped from, you know, 10% roughly of, of uh, retail to upwards of 40% now, you know? And, and what that means yeah. is that there's gonna be lots of demand for engineers. The, yeah. the new economy, the things that people, you know, telemedicine, another example, right? People were consuming services physically in brick and mortar spaces. Increasingly, they are now realizing, hey, e-commerce is great. I didn't really try it that much, or I never really thought I could buy X, Y, and Z yeah. through e-commerce. Now I'm buying everything through e-commerce. And I realized that actually most of the things I buy are perfectly fine to buy through e-commerce. It's actually yeah. better than you know driving down to the local Walmart and Absolutely. going buying it in person. And that is not going away, right? So it accelerated a lot of trends. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other hand, there are a lot of businesses, you know, uh, a lot of activities. I think you know, like yours and mine, that do require an in-person component. And yes, you can do them remotely, mm-hmm. but they're not as good, right? Yeah. And so a good precedent to look here is, you know, take something like SARS. Right, SARS happened to SARS happened mostly in Asia, right, largely in China and a few surrounding countries, and you know SARS had the, the same response happened in SARS, where basically people shut everything down, mm-hmm. and a lot of activity had to become sort of remote only, right. And of course, video conferencing wasn't as good then. A lot of the online services weren't as good then, so it wasn't exactly analogous. But you know what happened was that you know people you know sort of hunkered down to, you know, people stop going to school, stop going to work, whatever. Uh, they tried to do as best they could, uh, but people fundamentally after that went back in the office mm-hmm. because they realized like, of course, the best forms of human uh, uh, organization are generally speaking in person, face-to-face because we are social creatures. 
And you know, if you want to rally human beings together to make them work hard towards something, the easiest way to do that is the way that we've done it for millennia, which is in person, in small tribes, the way that we've always done it. Right. And so I think, you know, if you're a salesperson, if you're a product person, if you're a, if you're in a fast moving startup, if you're in, you know, uh, uh, something like what I do in venture capital, you will go back to the, the better version of what you were doing, which is not through video calls, but in person. Um, but, but if you're an engineer, if you're a support person, if you're whatever, you are going to get more freedom. You're ultimately going to get more maneuverability. And the real suckers game is going to be the people who are engineers who stay in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Those are the people I think who are going to end up having the worst of it because they're gonna keep paying the extremely yeah. high cost of living, uh, yeah. but not engage in this sort of arbitrage of yeah. going and living somewhere cheaply and, and doing more remote work. That's what I think is gonna be the equilibrium going forward. Yeah, you mentioned that um, countries in in Asia, they had SARS before and you know that that explains why we see so many people from that part of the world, or we saw pre-pandemic wearing masks. And I guess we're always wondering, oh, like, why are they wearing masks? But that's because they kind of went through whatever we're going through now. And, you know, here the media kind of speculates a lot that, hey, this is the new way humans are, humanity is going to progress, where we're going to be in and out of pandemics on pretty frequent basis. Do you believe that? Because if we're going to be in and out of pandemics, then I guess it doesn't make sense to come back to offices. But if it's kind of the same situation that happens uh, again, like looking at historic examples of Asia, SARS happens, lockdown happens, everyone then still went back to offices, like some professions, I guess, stayed remote. But at the same time, the notion of offices and cities it did not go away. Um, so that's a really great point that, you know, if we're not going to be in and out of pandemics, then it makes sense to go back to offices. But do you believe that we might, like, this might be just the new way humanity progresses? So I, I do think that, you know, COVID is not going away in the next few months, right? This is something we're right. going to live with for a long time. Uh, but there will eventually be a vaccine and there will eventually be effective treatments. And, you know, or either that or it just burns through the whole population. And that's how we end up getting to the other side of it, right? right. But, you know, we've gone through pandemics before and none of them have been permanent, right? So mm -hmm. I, I, it, it's very obvious that there will be a getting to the other side of this at some point. The question is what the world will look like then. Uh, as for whether pandemics will become more common, um, I think probably, I think there's definitely a chance that, or a, a very significant thing that we should be worried about is that you know, this, this pandemic was almost certainly brought about, it was, it was you know, sort of zoonotic, meaning that it came from an animal. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there's almost no doubt in my mind that at some point we will have a pandemic that is created in a laboratory at some point. Mm -hmm. We have the ability to do that already. Yeah. And, uh, if, if, you know, it, it's one of those things that becomes scary enough is that as the cost of creating these pandemics goes down, the, the risk that some crazy person or some really malicious person somewhere in the world okay. creates one and sets it loose, uh, just approaches one, you know, it just becomes higher and higher risk. And uh, I think eventually we'll see that. And so this is a good wake up call for the world that, Hey, uh, the, you know, there, there's this, um, there's this analogy that, uh, or this metaphor that, that I think it was called by Nick Bostrom, where he mm -hmm. talks about the sort of the urn of technological development. So you can imagine mm -hmm. this urn that's got a bunch of balls in it and almost all the balls are white. And mm -hmm. we, we reach in, we pull out a ball and it's a new technology. And so the first ball we pull out is electricity. And that's great. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful technology. And the next ball we pull out is, you know, uh, um, you know, the telegraph or then, you know, the telephone and then, you know, the transistor and, you know, uh, uh, synthetic biology. And all these things are great. They're all improving our quality of life. Eventually, we're going to pull out a black ball. And that black ball is a ball that is a, a genuine advancement in technology, but that actually decreases our chances of survival. And it feels to me like we are now getting at the point where we've started pulling some black balls. And the world is not really designed to deal with that. The world is not designed to think of technology in that way. So, yeah. you know, we, there, there's been increasing talk from folks like, you know, uh, Elon Musk or Elon Musk, yeah. Musk about, about On AI, like AI yeah. exactly. AI mm -hmm. is being one of these black balls. Yeah. And I think that's, do you, that's do, actually, you, do you think AI is a black ball? What's your personal I, opinion? I think it's a, I think it's a gray ball. I think that there are a lot of positive things mm -hmm. that are going to happen as a result of AI. And there are also a lot of negative things that we need to do everything we can to avoid happening as a result of, of the, the rapid growth in AI. It's very clear AI is going to drive a lot of the way that our world works going forward. 
You know, yeah. it's going to improve very rapidly and it is going to become a fundamental part of the substrate of how we live our lives and how we run our cities. And uh, that, that should scare you. That should absolutely scare you because we don't understand AI that well yet. You know, even the, even the stuff that we do use, even the stuff that works, we don't have good theoretical models for understanding how they behave and what makes them work the way they do. Uh, but it's clear that people are going to deploy it anyway. So as AI gets better and better and gets closer and closer to the threshold of human-like capabilities on various tasks, mm-hmm. uh, that is a real risk. And we need to spend a lot of our time and energy, not just developing these technologies, but figuring out how to make them safe. And I fear that we haven't done a great job of that with AI. But you know, with synthetic biology, it's very clear that we have done just absolutely terribly in preparing ourselves for this kind of stuff. You know, So whether or not this pandemic was generated by a synthetic biological attack, right? It almost certainly wasn't, but let's imagine that it was, it wouldn't make a difference, right? Yeah. Like our, our job of, okay, how do we protect ourselves against a pandemic? We've shown that we've done terribly. We've shown that we have absolutely no capability to protect against this kind of thing. And that is something that we're just going to have to get better at next time around, because this will only get easier. It will only get easier for people to create these sorts of things, whether they be state actors, whether they be you know, private individuals, or whether they just be crazy people. Before we jump into questions, uh, this is actually a great follow-up on your, on your point that I have. Uh, what is the advice that you have to people in my audience, to people in general, for how to adapt to the rapidly changing world now it's been a wake-up call to us that the world is very much changing that we're not quite prepared what should individuals be doing right now or in general to be more adaptable because clearly you know there is a lot of countries in the world that are quite ahead of the game competition there is much much higher and they're adapting and they're just like much more efficient in uh riding the wave of new technologies and riding the wave of new skills etc like china for instance i heard yesterday there embedding computer science into a curriculum of students from first grade which is like quite ahead of the game from where <laughs> we're at right now I know, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. Scary. what should what should we focus on so uh it's hard for me to give general advice to everybody because i think everybody yeah, yeah i i, I would let's, say, let's give say, the same advice to everyone sure. let's say but, people in the technology field y- yes so what i would say is uh, probably two things that i would zoom in on one thing that this whole pandemic has made really clear is that it's, it's almost in a way the same advice that I give to companies mm-hmm. is you need to be set up for survival. And what I mean by that is that your own personal burn rate and your own personal runway are two of the most important variables that you should know at all times. And so if you are spending X amount of money and you have this, you know, X, Y, Z much saved, and you know, these are the expenses that you can cut to like increase your runway, mm-hmm. you always, always, always know your personal runway. You should know exactly how long can I last at my current expense level or at a lower expense level that I can move to uh, mm-hmm. at, at the current level of my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And if you need to turn that down, you should be able to do that. You know, uh, I think there are a lot of people who got totally blindsided by this thing. And, yeah. and you can't blame anyone for that. This was genuinely a black swan. You know? uh, but you should be adaptable to changes in the world. You know? Uh, and uh, this is something that you know I, I talk to you about a lot about yeah. you, know, you figuring out your personal runway and what you're going to do post Airbnb. Um, and I I think about the same thing for myself. And I talk to my portfolio companies and tell them the same thing: is that yeah. you should always know because your 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 personal runway is your freedom. Mm-hmm. That is an, that is an accounting of how free you are to do whatever it is that you want to do or to go figure out the best thing to do. If you have one month of runway, then you are not free. You need to go and figure out how to extend that runway with everything that you have. You cannot just go and decide, hey, I want to do the best long-term thing for myself. Mm-hmm. You've got to fend for the short term, right? So that's why I think, one, figure out your personal runway and do whatever you can to extend it. And that might mean moving. That might mean cutting some expenses. That might mean, you know, whatever. Uh, but mm-hmm. figure that out. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'd say is invest in your own skills and especially mm-hmm. invest in high-value skills. So if you're a programmer, and you're out of work and you're looking for work, right now is the best time to start learning new technologies. You know, yeah. if, if, if there are particular things that are valuable in your field, and I, you know, I know not everybody in your audience is a, is a programmer, um, go take the time now, really create a, a rigorous framework for yourself of how you're going to learn the most valuable skills and just grind on them. Because fun, you know, in the long run, the number one thing that is going to position you well for the future 
is being a high skilled person in a field that's valuable. Yeah. And, you know, now is, is a great time. You know, we're all fucking locked indoors. Now is as good a time as you're ever going to get to yeah. spend your time really learning stuff that's going to be valuable for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. What are, I know this is again, pretty broad and in every field, if you're a programmer, let's say every field has some like hot new technology that is coming out. But if you were to answer broadly, what are like the three top things in technology to watch out for and to start up <laughs> level in your skills right now? And uh, I mean, machine learning is one that comes to mind. Sure, I guess. sure. Yeah. Um, I, I'm kind of hesitant actually to answer this question because I feel like it, it, it ends up, this, this is a very common question. And I think, yeah, I feel is. like it ends up, it ends up driving people in the wrong direction. Right. So it really, really, really depends on one, what are you passionate about? Two, yeah. what are you already good at? Right. So even programming is not just like one thing. There's like 5,000 different types of programming. So you can be Absolutely. a low level programmer. You can be a front end programmer. You can be a back end programmer, you can be a database programmer. You can be a VR programmer, a gaming mm-hmm. programmer, iOS mm-hmm. programmer, <laughs> in which case, you know, what I would recommend to you is like, what type of programming are you most interested in? Interested in. And then go deep on that thing. You know, it, it, don't be like, okay, great. I love iOS programming, but Luba says machine learning is the thing. So I'm going to go learn some machine learning. It's mm-hmm. like, well, that is going to be completely worthless to you. I mean, it might be intellectually interesting. So go do it yeah. for that reason. But, you know, learning some machine learning, you're not going to get a job as a machine learning engineer if you're primarily good at iOS, right? Yeah. Like find the thing you're most passionate about and then learn the adjacent valuable things to that thing that you're passionate about because you're rewarded much more for being an expert than you'll be rewarded for being a dilettante. So that would be that would be my advice. So if you're looking for what's the next hottest thing in iOS, I don't know. I'm not an iOS engineer. Just go Google it. You'll find 5,000 yeah. articles telling you what's hot. Uh, but that would be yeah. my advice for somebody. I love that you expanded on that because I think that's a point that a lot of people miss. People are looking for general advice of like top whatever, five things that are going to be hot in the next two months and then jumping kind of, you know, disregarding everything that they did prior and not building that story for why am I jumping into this new hot thing that's going to be valuable in the next two months. Um, and they kind of get lost into why am I even learning this? What am I going to do with this? And how does it again tie together with my previous skills? So I think that's definitely true that, you know, see whatever you're interested in, see whatever you've done before, and then look for the next high leverage thing that will bring you ahead in that specific field or field of your interest. Hasib, thank you so, so much for your time. It was so fun talking to you. I know that crypto is usually a topic that I, I tried to avoid, but I learned so, so much in us spending a lot of time speaking about cryptocurrencies today. So thank you so much for answering all my questions, for answering them. So thank you for your time. Totally. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you would like to find Hasib on the internet, he's quite active on Twitter and his account name is at Hasib. That's at H-O-S-S-E-E-B. Or you can find and read his blog at hasibq.com. That's H-A-S-E-E-B-Q.com. Thank you so much, guys. Please consider subscribing and sharing this podcast if you've enjoyed it. I really, really appreciate your support. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day.